Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast, episode 20, The Swedish Era, part 3. In last episode, I didn't have enough time to complete this recording, so I went back and cut the episode a little short. In this episode, we start off with a fight against heresy before we move on to education and culture during the Swedish era. In the 17th century, Lutheranism remained alien to most Estonians. In the Middle Ages, the ancient Estonian religion had mixed with Catholic traditions. Thus, the eradication of such was not an easy task for Lutheran pastors. Regarding the beliefs of the people as superstitions and as such extremely harmful, the pastors destroyed places of sacrifice that had been taken into use again during periods of warfare. A great peasant disturbance in Osula in the parish of Urvaste in 1642, known as the Revolt of Puhajoe, is also connected with heresy. A local landlord built a watermill on the Vohandu River, though the peasants believed it to be sacred. The peasants considered the failure of crops that devastated the country to be revenge for polluting the river, and therefore destroyed the mill and the dike. Although the army sent there successfully put down the revolt, the local pastor had to acknowledge that the peasants, quote, don't know anything about God or his word, nor belief, nor the commandments. Their blindness, heresy, idols, and sorcery goes beyond all bounds. Relying on the support of Swedish authorities, the Protestant church showed special eagerness in the persecution of witches. At that time, trials for witchcraft occurred throughout the country. Often more active and talented people like folk doctors fell victims to such trials. Anonymous denunciations also gave grounds to suspect a person for witchcraft. In 1623, Superintendent General Samson published detailed instructions on how to recognize a witch and how to handle them. Such a guide for the identification of witches gave an impetus to new trials. At first, the accused faced an ordeal by water. The hands and legs of the accused were tied and was let down to the water with a rope. It was believed that an innocent person would sink to the bottom and a witch would float. In the ordeal by water, showed that the accused of being a witch, the person would be forced to confess of the most absurd accusations while under torture. Burning on a stake was common punishment for witchery, but towards the end of Swedish rule, putting to the sword was more common. However, death penalties became quite rare at later witch trials, and the convicts were punished by being put in the pillory near the church and were beaten. The last death penalty executed from a witch trial in Estonia, was carried out in 1699. Promotion of Public Education To reinforce the influence of Lutheranism, the authorities considered it necessary to spread literacy. Initially, parish clerks were supposed to teach reading to peasant children. However, literacy spread with much difficulty as there were very few parish clerks and their education was lacking as well. The training of teachers became the main task. Bengt Gottfried Forselius, who grew up in a family friendly to the peasants, assumed this extremely difficult task. He was born around 1660 in the district of Haryu, parish of Haryu Madise, to a family of a Swedish pastor. 
who came from Finland. Forselius also spoke good Estonian and German. After studying Higher Education Institute in Tallinn, and for some time at a university in Germany, the young teacher started to teach peasant boys for free. In 1684, a teacher's college was founded in Piscopi Moisa, near Tartu, in order to train Estonian school teachers and parish clerks. Forselius was the only teacher of the school. The tuition was two years, and most of the pupils came from the vicinity of Tartu. The main emphasis was placed on fluent reading and religious instruction, while some hymns, bookbinding, German, and math were taught as well. Forselius introduced a new method to acquire the ability to read more quickly by asking one boy to read aloud and the others to follow the text silently. From 1686, a new printed alphabet, alphabet book written by Forselius himself came into use. The landlords who did not like the peasants' aspirations towards education started to spread rumors about the harmfulness of schools. For example, they argued that pupils were recruited to the Swedish army after finishing school, or that the teacher would ask for an enormous tuition fee. In order to break the opposition, the energetic Forselius went on a long journey to Stockholm with two of his best pupils, Ignazi Yak and Pakri Hansu Yuri, from the parish of Kambia. The, pu the pupils also demonstrated the excellent abilities of Estonian boys to King Karl XI. In 1688, Forselius made another trip to Stockholm, where he was appointed the inspector of Estonian and Livonian peasant schools, and given the permission and power to establish schools wherever necessary. On his way back, however, young Forselius was killed in an autumn storm on the Baltic Sea. The work of the teacher's college stopped. However, there was an optimism about the future of public education. Within four years, about 160 young Estonian men had received instruction at the seminary. There is evidence of 41 peasant schools, most of them in South Estonia while Forselius was alive. In 1687, the Livonian Diet decided that landlords must build a school in every parish and pay the wage of the local teacher. However, the progress in building these schools was slow and teaching usually took place in barn dwellings. Although there was still some opposition among the nobility, soon there were schools in most parishes of Estonian territory. Besides schools, home teaching played an important role in teaching children to read. Children who could not learn to read at home were required to attend schools. By the end of the Swedish rule, the, the percentage of Estonians who could read was remarkably high. According, according to Chilean Rauschert, a, prog a progressive pastor from Sangaste, even herdsmen read books while looking after their cattle. He also expressed the opinion that the Estonian people are like fallow land, which yields good crops if the brushwood growing on it is cut down. Besides promoting popular education, the translation of the Bible into the vernacular was also considered to be an important by the Lutheran Church. The figurative style of the Bible demanded not only very good co command of the Estonian language, 
but also the derivation of old words and invention of several new words by the translators. This in turn required standardization of the literary language. The, di the division at the time of the Estonian language into Northern and Southern Estonian literary languages made this task even more complicated. The spelling of the earliest Estonian printed matter was completely freeform. Only in 1637 did Heinrich Stahl write the first Estonian grammar. However, this work only aimed at adapting the Estonian language to the rules of German. Stahl made much use of foreign letters such as ch, ck, f, ph, tz, and x. Although Stahl's grammar remained far from the colloquial language, it was considered to be an authoritative and indisputable survey of the Estonian language for decades. Forcellius made a proposal to use the phonetic system of spelling taking Finnish as an example, but it was rejected due to the opposition of conservative pastors. The argument that the phonetic system of spelling would be far more simpler to the Estonians did not find any support, as according to pastors supporting Stahl's system, the peasants pronounced their language in the wrong way and carelessly. The system of spelling was an issue at the Bible conference held at the manor of Liapa near Sessis in 1686 and at Pilistvere in 1687, but no agreement was reached. In fact, these were the first conferences on the Estonian language. Deriving from this dispute, Johann Hornung published an Estonian grammar in Latin in 1693, drawing up the rules of Northern Estonian orthography or spelling, borrowing ideas from both schools of thought. These rules, known as the old system of spelling, remained in force until the middle of the 19th century. The inability to reach an agreement over the spelling system was the main reason why the Bible as a whole was not published during Swedish rule. Still, in 1686, the New Testament was published in the South Estonian literary language, translated and edited by Andreas Virginius, pastor of Cambia, and his son Adrian. This was also the first book exclusively in Estonian. A manuscript translation of the Old Testament and a North Estonian version of the New Testament were also completed, but due to the Great Northern War, they remained unpublished. Mostly religious texts were published during the Swedish rule. In 1632 to 1638, Heinrich Stahl published an extensive four-volume hand-in-home book of the Estonian Principality in Livonia, of which text was printed in parallel in German and Estonian. The book consisted of passages from the Bible, hymns, and small Lutheran catechism, and was mostly meant for pastors with the poor command of the Estonian language. In the middle of the century, the first attempts to print Estonian hymns, considering rhyme and meter, were made. Martin Gillaus, a Tartu University graduate, is known as a translator of hymns. Some of his translations are in use even today. Estonian secular poetry started to develop along religious hymns. Along with French, Estonian was introduced in salons. 
it became customary to present poems, for example, wedding songs, written in Estonian for, for major family events. Poems written in the language of the native population could be found even at the heading of dissertations. Reiner Brockman, pastor of Kadrina and later professor at a Tallenheyer Educational Institute, remains in the history of literature as the best-known authors of the Estonian occasional poetry, which are poems made for specific occasion, like the aforementioned wedding or a dedication. The authorities allowed the, printed, the printing of Estonian books in South Estonian literary language in Riga and those in North Estonian in Tallinn. In 1631 to 1710, at least 45 books were published in Estonian, in addition to some other small printed matters. Taking into account the literacy was widespread, several official announcements of the governor general were also published in the local language. The beginning of Estonian journalism also comes near the end of Swedish rule. In 1675, a German weekly, Ordinary Freitags Post Zeitung, began to circulate in Tallinn Gymnasia and Tartu University. The ideas of humanism, which emphasized the importance of science and education, were very popular in the 17th century Europe. In the Swedish kingdom, gymnasia, institutes of secondary education, were founded in the founding of the University of Uppsala. The only institution of higher education was supported in every way. A similar organization of education, of course, also introduced in the new province. The active student life in Tartu under Polish rule also caused the Swedish authorities to show serious initiative in this area. The first governor general of the province, Johann Skeit, played an important role in organizing the educational system in Livonia. Skeit was an educated young man and taught King Gustav II Adolf and also served as a chancellor of the University of Uppsala. On his initiative, the so-called Academic Gymnasium was founded in Tartu in 1630 where the system of teaching was quite similar to that of universities. So it became a prelim preliminary step to becoming a full university. In 1631, gymnasia were also opened in Tallinn, later named the Gustav Adolf Gymnasium. As early as 1631, Skite submitted a petition to the king to reorganize the Tartu Gymnasium into a university. In June 1632, Gustav II Adolf signed the founding charter of Tartu University. The opening ceremony took place on October 15, 1632, and it was named Academia Gustaviana after the king. In his speech at the opening ceremony, Johann Skite announced that not only noblemen and citizens, but also peasants could study at the university. However, in reality, the latter had no opportunities to enter a university. According to European tradition, there were four faculties at Tartu University. Studies began at the Faculty of Philosophy, which gave necessary preliminary knowledge. The essential university education was acquired in the higher faculties of theology and medicine and law.
The duration of studies was normally nine years. In order to acquire a broader education, one often studied in several different universities in succession. This was possible as Latin was in use as the language of tuition all over Europe. One did not have to finish a certain school in order, in order to become a student, and sometimes even 10-year-old boys were registered in the matriculation roll. 14- to 17-year-old students were quite common. On the acceptance of new students, a special ceremony was carried out in which traditionally the new student candidates in odd masks were laughed at during parties. Those were the good old days. Uh, was this the earliest form of hazing? Well, the main forms of studying were lectures and disputes, the latter being useful in developing performance and debating skills. Students became eligible for scholarship after passing uh, term examinations. Numerous Swedes, Finns, and Germans studied at Tartu University. There is also evidence of one Latvian student. However, there is no clear indication of any students of Estonian origin. Still, Johannes Freyer from Tallinn, who started his studies in 1642, is believed to have been an Estonian. Several university teachers and students were interested in the native people, studying Estonian history and folk culture. The university worked in Tartu until the Russians seized the town in 1656, during the Swedish-Russian War. Some of the professors and students who fled from the war tried to continue their activities in the rooms of Tallinn Gymnasium, but after a while such activities lulled. In 1690, the university was reopened in Tartu. As the conditions in the town were quite poor, the university moved to Pernu in 1699. In contrast to Tallinn, the university was highly appreciated in Pernu, and despite the war, the continuation of, it, of its activities was supported in every way. As Pernu surrendered to the Russian army in August 1710, the university also stopped functioning. The property of the institution was taken to Sweden, while professors and students had either fled or died of the plague. Decorative Art and Architecture While the first decades of the 17th century almost entirely belonged to the Renaissance, by the middle of the century, Baroque had become the leading style in all fields of art. Woodcarvers produced works with expressive forms. The most famous and productive master in this field in Tallinn was Christian Ackerman, whose work of art have been preserved in town churches as well as other public buildings all over Estonia. And you can visit many of his masterpieces from the comfort of your own computer at www.ackerman.ee. Two ends at the end of Ackerman. Stonemasons decorated buildings and made magnificent tombstones adjacent to them. Several circled crosses erected at cemeteries in the countryside were probably also cut by town masters. The circled cross as a symbol of sunlight was widely taken into use in the 17th century by wealthier Western and Northern Estonian peasants and manor officials of Estonian origin. The text on these crosses were usually carved in capital Latin letters. Baroque wall and ceiling paintings spread. 
made to the order of the town council, the brotherhoods, and wealthy citizens. The artists also started to paint more portraits. During Swedish rule, Estonian towns preserved their medieval looks to a great extent. Large-scale building activities were taken into towns where the wars had caused great damage and fires, such as Narva, Tartu, and Pernu. Minor towns where wooden buildings dominated had suffered from irreparable damage. Their economic state did not allow them to achieve any appearance better than that of a small town. Swedish authorities organized building activities in towns according to their aims. The new building policy was most efficiently carried out in prosperous Narva, where living standards were rising. The dome church, town hall, and commodities exchanges became the most remarkable public buildings. The new style Baroque, which had become predominant in Europe, prevailed in these buildings and in other architecture during Swedish rule. The new style also changed the town's skylines. Taller buildings were built with gorgeous Baroque spires and can be seen today on top of Tallinn's Town Hall, Dome Church, Holy Spirit Church, and St. Nicholas Church. The Livonian War had proved that the era of cannons, the, the town walls and towers were not able to provide firm defense for citizens. Therefore, the Swedish authorities started to build new types of fortifications, bastions. Bastions were earthen pentagonal terraced fortifications. Walls held the embankment together. Inside, there were rooms for ammunition and defenders. The cannons were placed on a higher terrace in the middle of the bastion, and it was possible to fire in many directions. Simultaneously with the buildings of bastions, earthen intermediate banks and other supportive structures were built. Most large-scale building work was designed to create a new fortification system in Tallinn. However, only three of the 11 bastions were completed. Attempts were made to develop analogous fortification systems in other towns, most successfully in Narva. The building of major fortifications brought along new taxes, which put a strain on the economy and brought about the need for a large labor force. The building dead deadlines dragged on, and instead of more powerful bastions, smaller quadrangular redoubts were built. Still, the state authorities had been quite right at estimating the need for new fortifications, and soon their quality was put to the test. Peasant culture preserved its traditional character and changed slowly. Periods of relative economic well-being diversified it, but basic values were passed on from generation to generation. Rye bread remained the main dish for Estonians, and fish, especially salted herring, some of which was even imported from Finland, was usually eaten along, alongside bread. Everyday bread was made of grain and mixed with chaff, ground by a hand mill or at a regular mill of new edible plants, lentils came into use. Flour or barley porridges, as well as peas and beans, were constantly flavored in these uh, festive meals. However, the peasants' table was the fullest at weddings, which have been described as wasteful. At, at Christmas, the peasants' food was more abundant as well. 
Besides everyday light ale and mead, plenty of homemade beer and spirits were consumed at weddings. At the end of the 17th century, spirits were distilled not only in towns, but to a large extent also in manors and farms, using rye and more seldom wheat. In order to sell beer and spirits, the landlord started a campaign to build taverns. Frequently, taverns became quite popular among the peasants. Here, village news spread, while taverns at bigger crossroads brought travelers, who in turn also brought news from faraway places. People also traded and played music in taverns. Tobacco had only just started to spread. In light of that, few peasants smoked at the end of Swedish rule. Generally, soldiers of the Swedish garrisons were the most eager purchasers of tobacco. Barn dwellings were the predominant type of farmhouse. The whole family lived in one room where grain was dried. It was usually surrounded by adjacent rooms and therefore completely dark. Only the oven mouth and pine splinters gave some light. As the oven stood at the wall of the threshing room, the cattle that were kept there in winter also received some warmth. The import of new fashions, mainly from Sweden, had a great impact on the developments of folk costumes. Skirts with stripes lengthwise, women's pot-like caps, men's cloth caps in North Estonia, pleated skirts, men's knee breeches, and others are all examples of this new influence. Bagpipes were also a substantial element of peasant culture. And that is it for the Swedish era of the book. And when we meet next time, young Swedish king Carl XII goes up against Peter the Great of Russia in the Great Northern War. Until next time, Nagamiseni.